0: all right beautiful so um before i do get into anything too specific apparently i have to give some shout outs to some people and uh, i guess i've got a list here so uh to oh my goodness gracious me who was it that i had to do um before we actually sort of get into the introductions liam jahan peter dimitri and samuel uh you consider yourself officially shouted out so Uh, With that out of the way, if you could um, sort of give us any kind of reply to make us, let us know that uh, the live stream is working, that'd be great, because oftentimes technology eludes us. Um, But on the assumption that it is, uh, we are going to get into it with um, just sort of a general introduction to who we have on the panel today. Uh, It's a small panel just because we wanted it to be... um, specifically people that have a little bit of insight into the nation's topic at hand, and also uh, what I think is going to be a majority of what we look at, which is sort of wealth taxes and, and how it influences uh, you know wealthy individuals and their movement around the world, um, what it means for, for global and domestic economies. Um, and I think that's going to probably draw a majority of our debate, I, I would imagine, but I, who knows, I've been wrong around this before. Um, so we'll get into the introductions um, really, really briefly. I'll, I'll introduce you all because um uh, you've all been here so we don't need to go on for it too long before uh, you know most regular viewers will already know you uh, so i'm economics explained i make internet videos and uh, people think i'm important at my opinion that's matter uh compounded daily also makes internet videos which are absolutely fantastic by the way and you should definitely 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 check them out i'll leave a link in the video description to those um his background is is investment banking uh, obviously he has a lot of insight into the world of uh, of finance, and, and you know, how different institutions engage with different world events, different economic policies, different happenings. Uh, so it definitely gives a lot of insight there. Uh, Captain Locke is a teacher who is absolutely fantastic at simplifying some very, very abstract and advanced con- uh, concepts. Um, he is a uh, uh, Masters of Finance, correct me if I'm wrong, if I've misrepresented you at all there. Uh, nope sounds right. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Um if not uh I apologize for um yeah for for under and or over qualifying you all at the same time. Beautiful. So um what we're going to start off with is is um Lichtenstein uh which was obviously the video that went up yesterday. Um and as an economy it is certainly uh one of those sort of really interesting um kind of niche things that kind of flies under the radar and and look to be honest Um, in your day-to-day lives, you are very, very unlikely to ever be affected by any kind of decision that is made in Lichtenstein, um, just because it is, look, let's be honest, a country with a GDP of six and a half billion dollars, you know, there are many, many uh, businesses in the world that have sort of more influential uh, economics than than this country, uh, but it doesn't mean it's not interesting all the same. Uh, And I think a lot of the things that it really has going for it are, are quite unique in the sense that there are... Lots and lots of European micronations. You know, we've seen, well, we've explored one of them before with with Monaco, which is, uh, you know, normally the big flashy one that most people pay a lot of attention to. You know, San Marino, Vatican City, just just a host of, of all these other ones that I'm sure I'm I'm you know forgetting a, at least a handful of them. Um, but what I think really you know sort of sets Liechtenstein apart from a lot of those is um, just the actual level of industry it has. In the sense that it probably goes from being this, um, you know, this this entity that that's no longer just kind of almost like a, you know, dare I say, a bit of a joke of a country, um, to being just a, a nation that that is very very small. Um, it's not a micro nation; it's just a small nation um, because it is, you know, sort of has all of the structures, all of the institutions, uh, all of the workings of a normal, regular, developed national economy. Um, you know, we we explored on. Things like uh, the first big one that we kind of had um, is, is economies of scale and what that really means. Now, of course, a, a nation like this um, is never going to really fully achieve um, economies of scale because, well, look, its economy is just so tiny. It's never really going to be able to compete with, um, you know, national powerhouses like, you know, China or, or any other sort of um, industrial centre out there. Um, but it doesn't need to. A lot of people make the assumption that if you don't have economies of scale uh, in the modern world, you're you're basically dead. Um, and I don't know. Is there any, uh, do any of you Locke or or come just want to comment on that first? I think um, that the assumption of economies of scale, uh, or you know, maybe if you even disagree with it, maybe you just sort of are of the assumption that hey, you know what, if you don't have economies of scale, someone else is just going to come along uh, and do it better and better and faster and cheaper than you.
1: So when we talk about economies of scale, we often think about big huge corporations, large institutions, large nations. But in fact, economies of scale uh, are ramp up pretty early on. And when it comes to size, once you have a a firm of 10 people, you could have a competitive advantage and you could also start uh, taking advantage of economies of scale. It's all about relative. Uh, So the economies of scale, there's no like, you know, hard point. There's no wall. That you have to get over, and then it's all—it's oh, all smooth sailing from there. It's all—it's huge, huge growth or taking advantage of, of uh, the sheer capacity um, and the advantage of having one system work for you know a large uh, firm or a large group of people. No, it, it can economies of scale can occur as small as you know under ten people, uh, and so in that in that capacity there. Uh, we, I think oftentimes people just misunderstand like what economies of scale are. They, they think that it has to be big to really take advantage of. Nope. It's as soon as it just, as soon as it starts benefiting you. And if it continues to benefit you, uh, the larger you ramp it up, that's just your basic, that's your economies of scale. Really. We don't even have to get into the math of it. We can just logically walk it through is if, um, you know, if my system benefits me and then it benefits the, the, another user, and then every time we continue to add users to it, it doesn't detriment the system, then that's economies of scale right there. I mean, is there any? I mean, it sorry, seems pretty had straightforward. Right? Yeah, I have my mind. Oh, right yeah.
0: The yeah. uh, only oh, other, other thing to consider about economies of scale is, is oftentimes people think it's just one of those things where you... Um, you know, you slowly work your way to, to this, this company that's just going to be this huge, um, unstoppable force uh, to be reckoned with and uh, And oftentimes, it actually goes the other way. It is there's almost like this u shaped model that people use. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. economies of scale. Um, and then and on the other end, um, it actually can, can get worse. So to give people a, a much more in depth look at economies of scale than, than probably I, I did in the video, um, we start off with something where, uh, you know, hey, look, if you're making one uh one dental drill let's say right and that's all that you're making well you're going to be somewhat limited there of course you're going to um you know you're going to have to buy the tools that you're going to need to to mill this dental drill you might have to uh you know source just that amount of aluminium and that's going to be pretty expensive to find a supplier and you know it's going to take you a fair amount of time to to put all this stuff together you know maybe gain the expertise that you need to actually sort of Um, design and build and make sure this this sort of little single unit works Uh, and there's obviously a lot of fixed costs involved with that Um, you know a a drill press that you use to make one dental drill uh, is going to um, cost as much as a a drill press that you use to make 10,000 dental drills you know obviously there's wear and tear but, but basically speaking that's the case and and if you build more and more and more of them you can you know you get the advantages of Uh, not only sort of diminishing fixed costs compared to variable costs for for unit costs um, being lower, but you also get, you know, uh, intrinsic benefits like, you know, cheaper sourcing of materials because you're a more valuable client to suppliers, Um, you know, a whole lot of other things. The the actual mechanics of, of, you know, um, economies of scale uh, on on the positive end probably don't really need to be explored. But um, something that you do realise is uh, on the other end, uh, if you are really ramping up towards Um, you know, uh, economies of scale uh, on the extreme side, it actually works against you all the same. Uh, And a lot of people don't realise this. So if you have, you know, something where you have completely sort of um, monopolised the market for, let's use the example of dental drills in the world, um, you know, you're going to start to run into some other problems. Um, For starters, you know, you might run out of of labour that is skilled to produce you know, whatever it is that you are trying to produce. You might run out of, you know, you might sort of really negatively influence the design, uh, sorry, the uh, supply of, of the components uh, or any particular throughput materials that you're accessing to, to design and build these sort of things. Uh, and also, you are going to be working in an environment where, look, you know, in the short term, at least, maybe your your, um, factories get completely overcrowded. Perhaps you have to uh, bring on board staff that aren't as well trained. Um, It it can work just as badly for uh, against you as it can for you. And uh, that is actually something where a lot of people um, have a lot of issues with um, that theory that economies of scale can go both ways. Um, I sort of tend to argue the fact that economies of scale, um, you tend to do well, obviously, by building a lot of something, so long as there's actually demand for those items. Um, And you can do poorly from building too many of them, at least in the short term. Um, But in the long term, eventually, I I sort of see the instance where, you know, everything sort of sorts itself out. So, uh, yeah, I think that was an interesting one. And as it relates to Lichtenstein, obviously, there's only so much demand for Uh, the shit that it is that they produce um, and you know we we kind of um sort of really leave at that Um, now outside of that obviously the big big topic of conversation um is is the wealth tax Um, obviously this nation most people consider it as as, you know a a bit of a tax haven Um, same as you know places like monaco san marino um and in in all those instances it's not necessarily fair um, they have taxes, they just don't have, um, you know, regular income taxes like you or I might pay, uh, on our income if, if you're sort of, um, not clever enough to avoid paying your income taxes. So, uh, and you know, the ultimate takeaway is that of course, um, you know, Lichtenstein, uh, does have taxes and it actually has a particular type of tax that, uh, that wealthy people around the world are, are trying to avoid like the plague, uh, and that is a wealth tax. Now, uh, it's always good to, I'll bring um compounded. I don't know if you uh, sort of want to sort of give us a basic introduction of the mechanics of, of particular wealth tax and the advantages, you know, I think probably from your end more so the disadvantages uh, of what these sort of systems will be and we'll probably use that as a launch platform.
2: Sure. Um, So I I think the first and and most important thing to understand about a wealth tax is, you know, how is that it's not income tax. So income tax is what you're taxed on and what you bring in an income every year. And that's the the basic part of it. And a wealth tax is uh, a tax on the accumulated wealth that you have. And the. The, the the thing that makes it really tricky um, from, from at least my experience is that when you apply a wealth tax to somebody who has, let's say, a vast amount of illiquid assets, which are, are accumulated to account for wealth, then around tax season, then there has to be a liquidity spree where they have to start turning this wealth into actual cash or some sort of currency that they need to use to pay their taxes. Well if there are a bunch of like-minded billionaires out there, then there's going to be obviously a, a rush to do that and, and therefore could drive down prices and uh, whether or not it's a physical asset or if it's stocks, um, you know, you, you have it just, you know, wh- whatever you think it might be. But the other issue is, is if it's, if you're just holding it all in cash and ready to pay taxes that way, well that money isn't re really, uh, put back to work in the sense that it could be put into uh, private investments into a variety of projects. I mean, yes, technically you could hold it in a bank and 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 have it as as savings, ee, uh, so that you could use that and uh, uh, hold hold it there. But you know, you're really not getting the best return on your investment if that's the case. So I guess the positive side is it's more tax revenues for whatever government you're working with, and the downsides would be. Um, the fact that it's uninvested capital. And if it is invested capital, it has to be brought out of being an invested capital, um, so that you could uh, pay your taxes with it. Um, very complicated, but, um, that's the high, high level.
0: Yeah. So,
1: there's also the additional uh, issue of uh, actually valuing a lot of these illiquid assets.
2: Yeah, yeah exactly.
1: And, and you could, you can It's just really difficult and when it's illiquid, because it's when we talk about illiquidity and and finance, we're basically talking about things that are rarely traded, if ever traded stuff like a really expensive house, for instance, like we're not talking, you know, a house that is, you know, worth a million or $2 million or $5 million. We're talking about a house that's 50 million and above that's rarely ever traded. Mm -hmm. That's very hard to also appraise and well, I shouldn't say appraise because there's that's not i don't actually know how all the appraisal goes into that but in in that regards there's it's, it's very illiquid and i'm just using this as an example there are other types of assets out there that are also extremely illiquid um certain types of bonds that just are never traded because they're ones that are you're bought and hold forever and there's no market for them and if there is a market for them it pops up overnight and then disappears again and you can't really look to the price of whatever traded or the exchange or the over-the-counter uh, uh, dealings because are those really representative of its true intrinsic value? And how do you then, because at the end of the day, wealth tax is really aiming to tax uh, the total assets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. Yeah. So yeah,
0: so there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, what, what's the sort of word I'm looking for um, difficulties in actually sort of measuring, quantifying and, and accurately assessing uh, the value of one's wealth. Although I would sort of put to you the argument that uh, what what someone might say is when we're looking at extremely wealthy individuals, uh, normally their their income is also you know extremely complex. Uh, it'll come from a range of, of companies. It'll come from trust structures. It'll have, uh, you know, it'll do sort of ring-a-ring-a-rosy and then um, and it goes all over the world and then it sort of eventually sort of ends up, uh, you know, the end destination, which might be, you know, their individual bank account. Uh, there could potentially be, just as many hurdles to assessing what their true income is compared to what their, uh, you know, true true wealth is. I don't know if you would agree with that. I don't think I necessarily agree with that. But it is an argument. Does anyone have anything to say well, to that I, I
2: I think that you know there is something to be said uh, about let's say somebody, uh, a, maybe a really wealthy uh, CEO's person. Let's say Jeff Bezos. His compensation being tied to some parts actual cash income and some parts, you know, stock options. Right. And, you know, me personally, I would rather that tied to, you know, 100 percent stock options, because if I were holding Amazon shares, I would want to know that, uh, you know, his incentives are directly aligned with mine and, you know, helping to grow uh, Amazon. Now, obviously, those are stock options. So, you know, it could stay at the same price and he wouldn't have to grow it. But, you know, ideally, he might be incentivized to actually uh, uh in, in improve the company.
1: Oh man, this conversation might go down the corporate finance route if we're gonna be talking about stock options and <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not corporate finance, but corporate management in regards to how this ties into wealth uh and wealthy individuals. Um but I would I would say that with uh you know doing the whole ring around the rosy, uh people are gonna use the loopholes um and they're gonna take advantage of them because ultimately at the end of the day, you know, they're trying to maximize their income. Uh, However, that income, actually, whether that's in the cash, you know, traditional uh, sense of a cash income, or a sense of uh, income in assets or income in whatever these, you know, some of the stuff can get really complex. And there's so much stuff out there. uh, It's hard to really get a grip on all the different types of strategies that, that you can do. So if if anyone else uh, is ever curious about you know closing the wealth gap or like taxing the rich, there's sort of really, uh, a really it's the the best suggestion for uh, learning how how to effectively tax the rich is to become rich yourself, <laughs> and to yeah. having to experience you know the, uh, the 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 pains of it, uh, and also I, I'm just saying look in. My my joke is that if you really want to know how to effectively tax the rich, you have to learn the system. You gotta learn it really effectively, because if you don't, you're gonna end up just creating loopholes. You will. Yeah,
0: and and uh, and no one uh, no one sort of uh, you know is more incentivized to do that than you know people that obviously have uh or their own money on the line to to try and avoid. But I do want to loop back before we do go off on this. Uh, too far from the, the the core issue, which is a wealth tax, and uh, and one thing that uh, how Daily sort of mentioned is, uh, especially if we took like a model like time where they basically say, okay, uh, you know, markets sort of returned, you know, what, let's call it eight um, percent this year. What we'll do is we'll halve that figure, um, and then we'll tax you at your marginal income tax rate based on um, what your what your wealth is. So I think it's like. 20, uh, 25% in which it varies year by year. But, but realistically, what it's going to mean is you probably, I think anywhere beyond uh, about $10 million in personal net worth, you're gonna be paying about 1% of your net worth as taxes, right. Um, So the other thing is, uh, of course, compounded sort of really hit um, on a really sort of touchy issue here, which is, uh, you know, when you think of wealthy, wealthy people, like truly, truly wealthy people, um, it's going to be invested into things like shares, I would imagine is, is a significant part of, of most wealthy people's um, net worth, uh, bonds, uh, you know, real estate, some a few like, you know, sort of more tangible assets, maybe a private jet, uh, maybe a yacht, maybe, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. But but really, a core majority of it's probably going to be in, in financial securities. Um, and... In that, you obviously sort of have the issue if, if tax time comes around, it could massively disrupt the market. You know, people sort of say, Well, fuck, I got to pay my taxes now. Um, all right, no worries. I'll just sell off my, um, you know, I'll just sell off my shares. Um, and then, okay, you beauty, uh, I'm going to, you know, have the cash to actually pay my taxes. Now, it's only going to be 1% of their net worth, but obviously the aggregate effect of a lot of very, very, very wealthy people doing that uh, could be quite. Quite significant on the market if it, if it all sort of comes around at the same time. The other thing that I would argue is, do you see this kind of wealth tax pushing people into uh, more highly leveraged positions, or at least uh, into you know uh, into asset classes that deliver higher returns?
2: Because yeah, you I'm sorry. Uh... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, look, if you're invested into private equity, which is the highest performing investment vehicle, I think they tar- they model for 20 to 25% returns uh, for the past 10, 15 years has been the highest performing uh, investment vehicle. I think if you know, you're locked up in a private equity fund, then you can't really liquidate. And so uh, it's also hard to value um, your investments without going directly to the private equity fund. Uh, doing a uh, valuation on all the portfolio companies that you have locked in. Um, and, um, you know, obviously that, that could be uh, uh, pretty, pretty difficult. But They're employing
1: a lot of analysts at that point. Yeah. It's like, it's like a tax season for wealthy people. Yeah. Like think of, you think of new form an account. because the job creation. <laughs> uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I like the, I like the sound of that, you know yeah uh, all, all the, the old analysts in me or the current i guess analyst in me you know loves that idea of oh here comes analyst season
2: yeah but and they and, would go on and, and you know obviously with private equity groups uh investment banks kind of along the same along the same vein they like to keep overhead low so that they can keep you know executive compensation uh um you know pretty fruitful i guess um along with their analysts so Uh, having to hire, uh, I guess, more staff of already burdensome analysts, I think would be pretty tricky, but I mean, that's diving way too deep into, into the, into the, you know, details of it. Um, But, you know, to, to the larger point, I I think that you're bringing up is uh, leverage in general, would they, you know, start to use more leverage, impose more risk? Yeah. Well, yeah, obviously, you know, for me, it's like, uh, you know, if, if, uh, yeah, I, I I would definitely if if my if my wealth was taxed, uh, you know, uh, more significantly, I would start using far more leverage for my own personal investments. Yes.
0: Yeah, and then also on the other side as well, you have to consider um, something something like you know, uh, treasuries. I'm talking like the really sort of stable stable stuff that's uh, you know uh, still probably important to it to a lot of um, you know asset portfolios. Um, you know, and still certainly important to potentially, um, you know, funding uh, business and business activities, you know, maybe even be sort of uh, high end corporate bonds, you know, for for blue chip companies that tend to, you know, have sort of lower expected returns than than, you know, securities, Um, they would probably be artificially less attractive because it's like, well, you know, if I'm going to be taxed 1% on my net worth anyway, and this is only expected to uh, to deliver, you know, 4% returns, you know, sounds all right, but uh, man, that's that's horrendous because I might barely be keeping up with inflation there, even while sort of realistically taking a risk because you know corporate bonds aren't aren't entirely risk free either.
1: Um, we do have to remind people that the amount of wealthy people that live in Liechtenstein is a very very small portion of the overall, you know, well, uh, truly wealthy people out there. Uh, of course, yeah, and, and-, and what. Uh, on the comment of like liquidating, like the last thing the market really wants to see is forced liquidation because of this type of policy. So like, uh, uh, like I, in my mind, I look at that and I'm like, this is just a nightmare like, of every yeah. year, this, this liquidating season rolling around.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, but uh, you have to remember, I mean, obviously, uh, when we we're looking at Liechtenstein, as I sort of said, uh, I'll, I'll be the first to admit it, it's probably a completely irrelevant economy. It, it's at yeah. best a triviality. Yeah. Yep. but you know, we had um, a a very very sort of prominent um, political candidate that that you know uh, has has obviously dropped out of the race now, but uh, was heavily pushing for a wealth tax um, on on extremely wealthy individuals, and in that's in the United States. Uh, so it's probably something that we will you know eventually sort of have to to, to grasp with and, and assess what the implications of um, such a system might actually be. Now it's actually curious for me because um, look, to be honest, I I. I I'd probably suffer under a wealth tax. Um, I, do, I I sort of, you know, live in a country... But how much, or... suff-
1: how much suffering are we talking about? You're not going uh, broke, well. No,
0: I'll no. Joke, I, I joke, I joke, I joke.
1: But I understand course, you mean
0: that. Yeah. You know, like a wealth tax isn't designed to make anyone go broke and, and hopefully no tax system is designed to make someone go broke. Uh, but um, what, what the sort of point that I was trying to make is, is look, to be honest, um, the, the current income tax system, in especially in Australia, um, is very easy to manoeuvre around. Uh, unfortunately we have you know a lot of pretty pretty high income earners wealthy individuals in australia that uh they don't pay a lot of tax um there are loopholes involved things like negative gearing Uh, if you own a company there's there's a lot of you know offsets and uh, things that you can do um structuring of share portfolios and selling off and and rebuying um poor performing shares in a portfolio of assets uh there, there are a few bits and things that you can do um to get around an income tax but of course a wealth tax is is probably one of those things that's a maybe a bit harder to manoeuvre around. Um, well, at least it looks like it, you know, never um, never overestimate the ability of people to get around taxes, I suppose. But the point that I'm trying to make is, is I should be opposed to a wealth tax, um, you know, just in, I suppose, my own personal best interests, but uh, it is something that I do see the value in despite all the criticisms. So I think what's really important is to really lay out um, what, what the disadvantages are gonna be. And the way I sort of see it is, um, exactly what you're talking about. Um, hey, you know, if we have to sell off our shares once a year, people are almost going to expect it, it's going to cause huge inefficiencies in the market, you're gonna have a glut of savings of people that are just like, well, I've got to anticipate paying my taxes. Um, so you know, what could be sort of productive investments into a business that's going to deliver jobs or prosperity or growth or any of that sort of stuff is kind of just sitting there anticipating, you know, needing to pay for taxes. Um, it and will- the,
1: yeah, the, and like the whole sell-off, that's not really ideal which gets me back to the whole analyst thing. We just employ a bunch of analysts, come in and do the, do the valuation, get a number on there and then say, it's paying in cash, right. Or pay it. uh, Or you should, I I don't know how it would work, Uh, but it's, uh, we don't, we just don't want people liquidating. That's, that's the key thing. We don't beyond what the, what they actually, they should only be liquidating things that are already liquid, right? Nothing that is illiquid.
0: Here's an idea, though, uh, something that, that um, you know, obviously, maybe this is just thinking on the fly, thinking out loud, uh, when, when we think of what actually owns a majority of, of companies in America, you know, the, the end people, um, what we find is, obviously, there's there's institutions primarily, um, pension funds, you know, to a, to a certain extent, hedge funds, uh, private equity firms for, you know, mostly targeted at small, medium enterprises um and you know other sort of uh, institutions that that pool collective money but when we think about uh whose money that primarily is um especially when we're looking at the the securities market uh it, it's primarily the top 10% of of people in america and yeah you know there's always the argument of oh yeah but you know people have it in their their pension funds and they hedge uh, not their their pension funds you know this is how people save for retirement yeah, yeah i understand that but uh but it, it, it's 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 insignificant um compared to the true players in the market which are ultimately i mean i
1: wouldn't say it's insignificant but when we're talking about the larger context it's like yeah it's uh it's not peanuts yeah, but it's not a, the, it's not like the driving force
0: they're there right? and it, i think i think it's um pension funds are, are the greatest marketing tool for um you know the, the powers that be especially in um you know uh equities markets around the world because they sort of say oh well you know, look. Uh, you can't let our company go under, or you can't let our stock price be rattled too much because, you know, think of the pension funds, think of people's retirements that count on this, you know, people's retirements, will, savings will be wiped out. Uh, and that's true. But in, in terms of the actual sort of net effect, uh, any kind of, of downturn is um, going to have much more of a, of an impact on, on wealthy people, at least in absolute terms. Uh, in relative terms, yeah, of course. Uh, Unfortunately, I suppose, you know, poorer people are more exposed to to even sort of minor movements because it it kind of means more to them, um, but in the big picture. Uh, Now, of course, the point that I was trying to make is, is let's sort of look at a hypothetical where a wealth tax is levied in in the United States um, as a way to get around the problems that we sort of saw with, you know, having to sell off a shit ton of assets uh, is to do something like this. And let's take our example of Jeff Bezos. Um, He he seems like an an easy. Oh, I just
1: looked it up. It's current assets under management for pension funds. 42.2 42.2 trillion so i don't know what the total assets under management for you know globe would be i have to go look that up and then i'll do a calculation and give you the percentage
0: yeah but, that'd be interesting
1: uh, anyway but... sorry to yeah. interrupt yeah e-
0: even even amongst that you'd have to say well okay who, who owns the majority of those pension funds? exactly yep yeah um you know uh, so that is you know something um that you'd also have to consider there as well it's, it's difficult to save it but... But unfortunately, you know, the rich owner a, a significant portion of, of the wealth is out there in the world, I don't think that's any big secret. Um, now, as, as a hypothetical, as we said, it comes to Australia, it comes to America, sorry, um, not Australia, please don't come to Australia. Um, and, you know, we have to get around this issue of, oh, you know, wow, we got all of this kind of, um, you know, we've got all of these people that are going to need to pay. Uh, this wealth tax but we don't want them selling off all their shares if we take the example of someone like jeff bezos right um currently worth you know what 130 140 billion dollars after the rally in amazon stock price in recent weeks um you know even after losing you know 20 percent of his fortune to his ex-wife um he's doing just fine um but let's just say for simplicity he's worth 100 billion dollars right uh and let's say a wealth tax was levied at 1 of someone's net worth and um, you know, it was all um, it was all an Amazon stock. So he would have to sell uh, one billion dollars worth of Amazon stock. That's going to do a few things, of course. That's going to be um, you know the the trading volume of, of Amazon stock. I'm not sure compounded. Do you, do you know what the the daily trading volume of, of Amazon stock is?
2: I do not. I do not know.
0: Nah. Okay. No, I just assumed you. Well, we can find
2: know. it. No, give me
1: a minute
0: yeah yeah uh, lock, yeah, yeah look that up, look that up. But I would imagine that a billion dollars is going to have a significant impact on um, on trading volumes and it's going to have a significant impact on price. Now, if people are anticipating that of course Mr. Bezos there is going to have to sell it off, um, that can sort of be priced in. Um, but it's still going to have a downward pressure. You know at the end of the day, he's going to have to find people that demand uh, Amazon stock and if there is sort of a an eventual sort of fallout of demand, um, is going to have to lower the prices, you know, even if our people are anticipating it, any kind of sell off is going to have some level of downward pressure, uh, which isn't awesome because, you know, obviously, uh, you want strong stock prices, because that means that uh, if Amazon does need to do a capital raise, they have the ability to, you know, raise money uh, at a decent price to facilitate whatever it is that they're they're doing to take over the world this week. Um, so we we'd call that probably a negative outcome. There's a hypothetical. Um, Let's say we sort of went to Mr. Bezos and used him as an example and said, oh, you know, look, Mr. Bezos, um, you know, you're now worth hundred billion dollars. Lucky you. We're going to levy a, um, you know, 1% uh, wealth tax on you. Um, But instead of you selling off your shares, what you do is just give those shares to to the government. And that sort of go into some kind of sovereign wealth fund where um, you have, you know, the... uh, collective value of some of the richest people in the united states you know what they're invested in uh and that kind of goes into our wealth fund which which stays invested so uh, if we have a sovereign wealth fund where you know mr bezos has contributed a billion dollars worth of uh, amazon shares um you know uh, let's say uh, elon musk contributes uh you know 300 million dollars worth of tesla stock uh you know whoever else, you know, um, the Waltons all, all contribute sort of, you know, I think collectively probably about $2 billion worth of uh, Walmart stock. You, you get this really big pool of, um, you know, uh, individual wealth that kind of makes up what is, you know, a very, very Americanized uh, sovereign wealth fund, right? Similar in many ways to, you know, Norway. I, I would argue that that uh, the United States, uh, the equivalent of the, the oil wealth in the United States isn't you know any kind of natural resource. It's the innovation that it um, that it really uh, encourages, and that might be you know their opportunity to to really sort of build up something uh, without sort of having all of these kind of negative impacts. What are you What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I am okay. Really well, I do have like, the
1: So let's put the thought on hold. I do have the info. Yeah. Uh, did the calculations uh, last Friday? Uh, Amazon uh, traded seven billion. Uh, so like that was seven oh. billion dollars in one day. Uh Holy and that's shit. which is actually on the probably, low, probably. that's actually on the low end. So I got to stress that that's on the low end uh in the over but I am looking at the data for uh since the start of the coronavirus. You know, on average uh I'm seeing anywhere around uh 15 to 20 billion uh exchanged a day.
0: Wow. Uh so like but then 2%, 2% of its value per day.
1: Yeah, but then pre uh pre coronavirus it was something around only ten actually, well, because stock price is totally different, uh it's only around uh four billion uh dollars uh a day so yeah, a there's a lot a lot you, a lot of different ways you can parse this information uh definitely, you can tell that Corona has impacted uh the, sh- the amount of trading that has gone on in, for Amazon and uh
0: yeah yeah jeez um.
2: Yeah, so I think to get a kind of good picture, you need what 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 percentages of those were buy orders and what percentage that were or just sell. volume. Yeah, it's, I just see uh, volume.
1: That's all I got. So actually, yeah. I don't have, I don't, kind of I, don't have so I don't have Bloomberg. I don't have a Bloomberg yeah. terminal.
0: So yeah, so you'd have to uh, you'd have to consider basically both, right? Um, yeah. You know, if, if it's actually traded, it's a sell and a buy that's sort of you know kissing and and, and being done, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but is the is volume measured on what's going into the? Um, the no no
0: volume measure maker.
1: so it's a market match right yeah. it's not yeah. just market maker buying or selling
0: no no because that would be okay. too easy to you just you just put up a billion sell orders for yeah you know, i mean
1: it's no $3. no but what actually what actually like the market maker themselves like keeps on i know, i guess the what the market maker keeps on the books for themselves like at the end of the start and at the end of the day really isn't going to be that big of it's not going to impact the volume uh,
0: uh, it, it's yeah. incredibly difficult to, to assess because, obviously, it doesn't take into account things like dark pools, if there are any for Amazon yeah. stock, which I'm assuming there are. There are. Um, there are. Yeah, of course. Um, but, you know, look, I, I think it, it very clearly demonstrates that actually that is, is significantly higher than, than what I thought. We're uh, saying. Yeah. <laughs> but, so, so
2: maybe maybe a billion-dollar liquidation might But remember,
0: it's not might just Bezos. Not be a,
1: it's, not, right, it's not just right, Bezos. Right, exactly. it's, sh- it's, it's a bunch of the shareholders who would qualify for that wealth tax. Right, which, right. For yeah. some Amazon shareholders, I think there's going to be a huge chunk
0: of them. Right. Yeah, and you did not even have to ass- assess like you know your average, let's say your average Joe schmo multi-millionaire. Let's say he's worth fifty million dollars. Um, you know, I think I think Elizabeth Warren was was uh, saying that they'd levy it for anyone over ten million dollars. I could be wrong there, but let's say ten million dollars. Okay, well he has forty million dollars that's over that wealth tax. He's going to have to pay you know four hundred thousand uh, dollars. Well, you know if he's invested in twin institutions, he's going to have to say, oh hey. Vanguard, or hey, pension fund, or hey, private equity firm, I need $400,000 stat, or the IRS is going to slap me. Um, I need that. Well, eventually, you know, the same sort of thing is going to happen. Happen. Um, you know, I think Bezos collectively owns about 12% of Amazon. Um, but you know, all these other institutions and stuff make up the other, you know, um, 88%. So,
1: anyway, I don't want to I don't want to Go down that i don't want to yeah. derail it yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, I think, yeah sorry really about that as well
0: yeah just just one person uh, i thought actually, we,
1: i just like drop the number you'd be like oh okay <laughs> but yeah yeah there's so much to discuss at this but roll back to before um,
2: the sovereign wealth fund
1: yeah sovereign wealth yeah, fund. Yeah.
0: So, yeah yeah so yeah the sovereign wealth fund It's uh, and let's say you know um the the us government was actually uh, expressly forbidden from actually selling off any of these um these shares so they just had to hold what was collected in these taxes so um, you know, hey, if uh, someone's worth a, a billion dollars um, and they they hold one billion dollars worth of their wealth exclusively in Dogecoin, uh, well, okay, you know, guess uh, the the um, American Sovereign Wealth Fund is going to be made up of a billion dollars worth of Dogecoin plus uh, you know whatever else might be out there. Then um, and, and they can't sell it; they just they can levy it based on sort of what it is, uh, based on a fair valuation or whatever they want to put up, but. Um, that is what it is. Now how do you how do you, how would you think about that? What are what is there anything that I'm missing
2: there? Well, um you know, I I'm I'm going to first talk about, you know, the I guess the good things about maybe there being a sovereign wealth fund and that is, you know, um maybe maybe the the government wouldn't have to like you said the government wouldn't necessarily liquidate it, but what they can do is they can borrow against it. So they can uh you know, they can post it as collateral uh it, without necessarily a new bond issuance if they wanted to. So that's the good side of it. Um, You know, I would say that uh, at least from my experience, uh, you know, the people with with significant amounts of wealth that would be taxed, they do like to uh, plenty of them like to save as much money as they possibly can. And when it comes to a high volume of money like that, um, you know, not only Well, a couple of things, I think they would find areas where they could, you know, potentially claim residence and and avoid that. Um, And maybe investment vehicles you'd see being started somewhere else, like maybe a a private equity firm uh, could be started in, let's say a a low tax area where it doesn't necessarily offer a uh, a wealth tax. And I think that could almost be very attractive to investors. But I think the other thing is um, for stocks and everything, I think that's, that's fine. But are you going to put a yacht in a private wealth fund or are you going to put private equity investments in a private wealth, or I'm sorry, a sovereign wealth fund? Um, it, it, and I think that's where it gets gets really tricky. Um, yeah, the, you,
1: the illiquid parts of the sovereign wealth fund are just going to be an absolute nightmare. And yeah. if liquid though, uh, it's, it's easy to yeah. sail with.
0: But, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and maybe, um, you know, that, that is an interesting one. It, it it comes to sort of these these structural inefficiencies with uh now i doubt you know um you're you sort of lucky in a sense that you potentially get exposed to, to these sort of high net worth individuals um somewhat regularly um but, but most of them if, if i can make a bold assumption to say that most of them aren't going to have their wealth exclusively tied up in uh yachts and private jets and uh, you know all this sort of thing that just shows off how wealthy they are unless they're donald trump but um, uh-huh. most of them are going to have some, kind yeah, of I, plus it
2: I think it's,
1: I don't think we want to actually physically take the, the yacht or a portion of the, I imagine that like we're levying the 1% of the, of the yacht itself. Well, we got to disassemble it's, uh, the, the, the bow of it and take that. That's the part, right? That's the 1% of it. It's yeah. like, and, I know this, that's a silly you, thought, you but
0: you could, you could ultimately sort of obviously... I know it adds, you know, rules, and, and we're already complicating it, right? What was supposed to be such an elegant solution is already going of getting these asterisks, and uh, soon it will turn into to the to the regular old tax code. Um, but you could say something to the effect of, look, uh, it has to be levied in some kind of financial asset, stocks, bonds, cash, um, you know, whatever that may be. Um, that is is sort of how it's levied. How you actually pay that out is up to you, but you can't pay it out in something that's that's non-liquid. And I would also argue that. You know, Maybe you even have a sort of cause on it that's like, okay, well, look, if you want to give us 1% of your yacht, um, okay, let's, let's say Mr. Bezos, let's take him as an example. Um, let's say he has, I actually, no, let, let, let's take a, a, someone worth $100 million as an example, right? Uh, and let's say they have a $50 million yacht, you go, okay, no worries. If you want to pay um, your $1 million tax bill, which is, which is what you pay on a, a you know, $100 million net worth, um, no worries. If you want to use your yacht for that, okay, you, we can do it, but it's worth $50 million and it's just going to have to sit in a, a government issued a, uh, like Marina or something like that.
1: Or, or the government rents it out to the person. I mean, like, yeah. that's a, that's a possible thing. Like if you want to use your yacht, you can use it, but every time you use it, you do have to pay, uh, for it, which, uh, springs back, like maybe, you know, just, you know, charge higher fees for, uh, or the Marina storage or, or tack, uh, have a a, like registration fees like maybe your registration fees uh for every year are your uh wealth tax on the yacht yeah exclusively just solely on the yacht like
0: yeah i I have a feeling that um yeah, no, that would be one of those sorts of things that is um, and and here's but the other again, thing as well. Most most yachts aren't registered in the United States. They're, exactly, they're registered yeah. in uh, Georgetown in, in in the Cayman Islands. So uh, maybe that would potentially fall outside the so jurisdiction of, of the United that's,
2: States. But. I, I guess I guess that's my that's my thing with it. You know, yeah, I, I think you know, wealth tax, you know, could definitely bring in more revenue, um, if if it's you know designed properly. I, I will say this though: um, a lot of wealthy individuals too will put their wealth in, in a place, kind of like you mentioned, uh, like an offshore. Uh, legally, they'll legally put their money offshore. So, in which case, they can, in order to have capital here in the United States, they could borrow against that. Um, so, if they take that borrowed money and then invest it, well, you know, they, they could say, "You can't tax this. This is this is this isn't my money. It's borrowed money. It's debt." Um, so how how do you get around that i suppose
1: exactly that's i mean look like, i don't i don't have an answer for that,
2: which uh, is this is part uh, of the loopholes these are
0: which is where we where we sort of get to um i suppose the the final issue that we should really t- touch on with this uh which is capital flight
2: yep uh, and and I think the jesus insider uh asked about that
0: oh did he okay, let me have a look where's the question there? I actually figured something uh um Yep. All right. There we go. Hang on. I think I can do this. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that the most amazing thing ever? It kind of cut you off. Um, It kind of cut you off a lot, but Uh, that's fine. No one needs to see Um, my box face. Yeah, there we go. I didn't realize that we could do that, which is absolutely amazing. So the Jesus Insider asked, I wonder how much influence brackets would have on capital flight. I reckon the people who are not uh, scared away by wealth tax would be scared away by progressive brackets, though. Um, Yeah, okay. So this is a really interesting one, of course, is the issue of capital flight. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about uh, extremely wealthy individuals, we're talking, you know, ten million dollars plus. Um, they're basically global citizens, right? Um, they have the ability to to live and or work in any country around the world. Oftentimes, the work that they do is is related to a company that they can manage uh, in any particular way that they choose. If it is that they choose to work at all, uh, oftentimes, you know, most of these people have investments that. Um, you know, provide them a majority of the income that they need to survive. So they're not locked down to a particular location. They're not locked down to a particular vocation. Um, they're not locked down to uh, any particular nation. Uh, the, Davos,
2: gonna, the Davos man, to put it in the. Oh boy, here we go.
0: We don't even need to take it to that level of an extreme. I, I'm <laughs> yeah, going yeah, to yeah. make an argument that anyone, uh, anyone with a net worth of over 5 million US dollars, right? Okay. Uh, is, is probably, if we look at something like a safe withdrawal rate, um, let's say 3%, I think that's pretty safe to, to draw on your assets Yeah, you're, you're talking about, you know, sort of making, uh, what's that, $150,000 a year. Um, and that's, you know, being extremely conservative. You're We're also
1: really, about- uh, you're really overestimating the intelligence of the average uh, f- uh, $5 million uh, uh, person. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, think- I don't know. I don't know. I've seen some uh it's like really questionable stuff like it,
0: it's yeah like... i mean obviously there's some dumb rich people but a majority of people that get to the five million dollar mark have, have probably gotten there slowly um you know have either sort of worked in, in very sort of high-end professions uh and or you know they've they've started a business that that is obviously pretty successful you know of course they're there they're, they're your rappers they're your your buddy youtubers oh hang on wait that's me um, Typically no, young people. young people yeah
1: who start their own YouTube yeah. channel? Whose name is EE? Nah,
0: nah, nah, uh, just, no, no, no. Uh, least Rolls Royces for me just yet. Although I do want a Tesla. So Ching, go support me on Patreon, guys. Uh, all right, now uh, that was a that was a tangent. But majority, a vast majority of people that kind of get to that five million dollar mark, um, you know, a relatively shrewd, prudent, intelligent people. Um, and you know, obviously, of course, there are exceptions, and it, it tends to be the exceptions that sort of make the headlines, as opposed to the boring rich person that just kind of, you know, has a has a nice r- diverse range of uh, stocks and bonds invested into, you know, Vanguard exchange traded funds, right? Um, but that kind of person, if we assume that general market returns are, um, you know, realistically probably about eight to ten percent, uh, give or take. Uh, inflation is is anywhere from you know one to two percent um that would mean that they could effectively sort of draw on um you know six percent relatively conservatively and they would never actually sort of eat into the principle of their investment and in fact their investment would actually keep up with inflation now if we halve that and say three percent uh we get to an incredibly conservative um what sort of people in, in sort of finance and financial planning call a safe withdrawal rate um, and realistically, if someone's living on three percent of their invested net worth, uh, chances are they can actually continue to get richer over time, uh, pretty significantly so. But they they speak, will. I've done the math. They will. Yeah, in almost any in almost any instance, um, you know, assuming that you know stock markets still continue to deliver positive returns, and you know, obviously they're they're invested in a nice, diverse portfolio that has nice even returns. 3% is, is normally the golden ticket where you're gonna actually just keep on getting richer and richer. There are people that retire indefinitely on 6% um, withdrawal rates and and they're normally just fine. So 3% is extremely conservative. But anyway, um, all, all to my point, let's take our example of that $5 million person, right? Um, they will probably be able to draw about $150,000 from that, you know, it's 3%. Uh, and that's enough for a pretty comfortable lifestyle in, in almost any area around the United States, you know? Um, outside of maybe places like San Francisco, um, Seattle, New York, Chicago, you know, huge metropolitan areas that are sort of world finance centers. Um, $150,000 a year is is extremely comfortable, uh, especially when you consider that, that taxes on, um, you know, invested income tends to be lower than taxes on, um, you know, uh, you know, regular sort of salaried employment. So they're going to be Pretty good. But if something like a wealth tax comes around, well, suddenly their safe withdrawal rate goes from, you know, uh, what is it? It's going to go from 3% down to 2% because I've got to account for this, um, you know, this wealth tax. They're going to go, well, you know, look, the United States is great. It's where I've grown up. I am, you know, obviously a citizen of the United States and I'm comfortable here. I, you know, get my high fructose corn syrup and everything that I eat. And I've become accustomed to that particular lifestyle. But you know look uh, the difference between living on $100,000 a year and living on $150,000 a year is is pretty significant um these kinds of people might just sort of say well you know what i could have a i could have a pretty good lifestyle on $150,000 in america but my goodness if i went to places like you know bali in indonesia um or you know thailand or uh you know southeast asian nations that have beautiful weather um you know beautiful beaches, all that sort of
1: stuff. Malta is my key destination. That's where I'm moving.
0: Yeah, yeah, we go. Malta, um, you know, all these sort of exotic locations. Uh, I think, uh, what's the other one? Uh, Like places like, uh, you know, Spain and stuff like that. Um, You go, oh, I'm just going to move there. I'm just going to take my assets and move there because I'm going to have more income. Plus, you know, obviously, I get the added benefit of a lower cost of living normally and $150,000 a year in America. You're going to be You're pretty damn comfortable.
1: You can do so much in Malta with that. You can do so much in Barcelona, Spain, with 150,000. It's
0: insane. In 150,000 dollars, if you went to places like Bali, um, you know, Barcelona, um, Marbella, wherever it might be in the world, um, you will live like an actual king. Uh, It's ridiculous. Uh, so you, get, you take advantage of the low cost of living and also avoid this this wealth tax. It might be the impetus for these people uh, that don't rely on actual salaries to maintain their quality of life. To go. So to okay, wrap, well, you know. so
1: wrap up this question, then like, how do we kind of prevent that capital flight? And is capital yeah. flight even bad?
0: Because well, I argue
1: is- that. Okay, go ahead.
0: Yeah, well, here's the things to consider. Uh, obviously, there are, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think uh, you guys would be much, much more adept at answering this question than me. There are actually policies in place for uh, United States citizens working abroad that they pay tax in both nations, don't they? So am I wrong there? What's the...
1: Oh, my gosh, I don't know. You put me on the spot, put us on the spot like this. Uh, yeah. I'm going to defer to Compound Daily because <laughs> I don't know. <laughs>
2: um. So if, if if you're, you know, I, I don't, I actually recall the exact answer to that. Um, So if you're technically working in another country, um, are you paying uh, income tax? Um, I I, I don't know. I actually, you know, I I know you're paying taxes in a way of you know, let's say property tax, but I, I don't necessarily know about income tax. Um,
0: yeah, because I, I I know America is very unique, and I don't remember specifically the mechanics of how it is unique. But if I as an Australian go and work in the United States, um, I just pay tax in the United States as if I was a you know someone who was legally. It's in a good the thing United
1: our federal States. government has a website for this, and if I'll just pull it up here, and I'll get back to you on it.
0: There we go. Yes. If you have a USA passport, you have to pay taxes to the USA no matter where you live. I thought that was the case. But I just needed someone to confirm to my staff.
2: Is that, is, that, uh, is that still the typical um, yeah, uh, income accurate? Tax. Okay, yeah, it's, in, it.
0: it's income tax. So um, so here's the big one. I think you pay tax in the the, the, the country that you're working first, and then you pay it in the United States. So it's a big bit of a double hitter. Um, so, so it's one of those things where you go, well, okay. If I go on, um, you know, let's say I, I I become an expatriate and I go work in Australia for you know for for a few years, um, and let's say I'm earning a lot of money, let's say half a million Australian dollars a year, you're going to pay basically fifty percent tax on that here in Australia. So you went two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and then you're going to pay tax on two hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars as if you're paying tax on that in America. Right? So you might okay. actually be ended, You might actually be left up with like twenty five percent of what you started with. Um, you know, uh, relatively conservatively. Right. Um, but then so you can
1: also just, you know, get rid of your citizenship if you're really...
0: If you really uh, hate it, you can, you can get rid of yeah,
1: your citizenship. If, if yeah, if you, if you do the math and you do the calculations and you you figure out uh, what your prospects are and you'll so, just so he,
0: take it. So here's, here's where it comes down. Now, if it relates to America, obviously maybe the argument's different for a country like Australia where where those kinds of rules don't apply. Uh, but let's say for the United States, the United States of America, um, if someone was going to to experience capital flight, they would, you know, to do it properly, they would have to sort of give away their American citizenship. Now that And that involves two things. Obviously, they have to find citizenship in some other country. Um, if you go to a country like Indonesia, like Bali, Indonesia, you know, which is where you're setting up, or, or Malta, or, or Spain, or, or any of the other sort of lovely tropical destinations that we've sort of identified here and say, I have $5 million, I want to live, I don't want to take any jobs, I just want to employ lots of people as maids and servants and gardeners and contribute to your local economy. Most nations are gonna be like, yeah, you beauty, welcome in, here's your passport. Um, So they're not going to have too much of a problem with it. So actually finding a new home to be a citizen of is probably not going to be too much of an issue, but you've got to make that uh, pretty serious kind of uh, consideration. Well, holy shit, you know, do I actually want to give up US citizenship knowing that if I turn around, it could actually be pretty difficult to get back? Is it worth saving $50,000 a year? Um, And that's where I think, you know, that's where the real argument of capital flight comes around. Um, you'd have to sort of argue that there are probably still a lot of people that just wouldn't make that jump. Uh, you know, look, if if that was the case for let's say myself in Australia, um, it, this is my home. You know, this is where I live. This is where my family is. This is where I'm comfortable doing business. I I, I understand I have faith in, in the stability of my 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 own economy. Uh, I know my money's gonna be safe safe here. I know that you know, fuck, I'm not gonna be subject to some you know political coup that that take. You know, sends my my home country into a meltdown. Um, you know, obviously, knock on wood. I would honestly say, well, you know, look, maybe it, it, it screws up my quality of life just a little bit, but maybe I just suck it up and pay it. Um, you know, what, what are your, What are, honestly? What are your thoughts on that? So,
1: I, I think uh, one of the things that we've really talked about is people often associate like capital flight, and they think about it from like uh, their, from uh, like Western countries or wealthy countries to other countries. When in reality, biggest danger of capital flight occurs when it's from poor countries, who lose that capital going abroad to richer countries. And rarely is it the case of like say the United States, where, like we're seeing just absolute capital flight of just people just leaving in mass, lots of uh, of money just leaving the United States, because that doesn't really happen because the United States is a global player and has a lot of businesses and has a lot of of opportunities to make money uh whereas uh the the key to keep in mind here is that if a person is a ghana a wealthy individual leaves ghana and they they, that's capital flight then there's not a whole lot ghana could do they've lost uh you know a, a significant member of of their uh community or uh like their wealthy individual um and and in that sense, that's where capital flight is really dangerous. But a lot of times we, we paint capital flight as a boogeyman, uh, especially here in the West, because it's an easy talking point. It's easy to understand. Oh, yes, if you tax people, people are going to be incentivized to move. Like that's just that's an axiom truth, right? So, so would, you, would, it, you make it,
0: the, would you make the argument that maybe capital flight is just a, a non-issue uh, in the United States that, yep, you know, what rich people would just suck it up and, and pay? Uh, it's
1: not a non-issue. Because it's an issue to somebody. it honestly is. there will always be people, but like it's just relative to uh, are, like are we losing literally all of our billionaires are all of our billionaires fleeing to you know some other country? Uh, and everyone like says like oh Ireland well yeah, if they they're leaving to Ireland, but they're still probably going to be doing business here in the United States because that's where their original like, might, probably where a lot of their wealth is tied up in. Here I, in the United States,
2: I think I think we're actually missing a part of the uh, um, the, the conversation because we we started talking about um, capital flight and then we mentioned um, that income was taxed necessarily after tax. Does that does that include uh, cap? So so if that includes capital gains, then how is that tax still di- going to disincentivize me uh, claim me residence to another country? Owning those shares and then borrowing against it, where the debt isn't necessarily taxed, and then I could refinance that as my equity continues yeah. to increase. If I don't sell the sell the uh, sell the equity, if I just hold on to it, I could refinance that line, or they could you know just increase my line, um, and then you know I could just continue to maybe refinance it as interest rates get 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 lower. So I'm I'm you know obviously playing devil's advocate, but I want to make sure that. As any policymaker, probably we would that implementing a wealth tax wouldn't necessarily incentivize uh, any sorts of capital flight, be that in uh, equity or or an asset transfer. Or, um, uh, you know, I see, I see, I think you see where I'm going with this.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the blanket rule is to sort of say the same kind of draconian approach they take with income is to sort of say, well, okay, uh, you know what? If you hold a US passport, guess what? I don't care if it's in the, you know, uh, Turks and Caicos, I don't care if it's uh, in the Cayman Islands, it, it's going to be counted as your net worth, yoink, we're going to take it. Now, hiding that, you know, you could probably do that, but maybe that verges on illegality um, in terms of, you know, maybe just sort of taking more Drukohoni approach in, in terms of, of actual, um, you know, sort of classes of, of what they consider their net worth there.
2: Got it. Okay. Yep.
0: I and mean, somebody... That's a very blanket approach but um yeah of course i mean uh, that's sort of the, the easy solution to that problem i guess even if it's not a very exciting one
2: mm, got it
0: yeah and and i think um the, the big one that to mention is yeah um of course capital flight is, is one of those things that you've seen in poor countries um but we're, especially when we're talking about taxes it, it, it's almost exclusively oh well you know look all of our rich people are going to leave um and maybe that maybe that sort of um you know history teller tells a different story there um which side of the fence you actually sort of sit on i, I think that's yeah kind of kind of an interesting one uh sorry go on look i, I cut you off halfway there
1: um no i'm i'm good yeah, yeah. i had a thought and then uh, i lost it
0: <laughs> no that's sad beautiful all right well um look if we don't have anything else to say i'm just gonna do a quick um uh it's going to all right. Okay. Uh, okay. Going to. add... I do have... Oh. actually. Uh, go ahead, and then we'll answer this question. Oh yeah. And then I'm yes. going to bed because I'm,
1: I'm sick. Okay. Yes. So I do want to uh, briefly like take. Not. I'm not going to move the conversation elsewhere. But there is this uh theory. Uh, Merton Miller uh wrote it in uh 1986 that you know regulation and you know uh nations creating laws to try to collect taxes or to, you know, stop certain actions or to, you know, regulate the banking sector or whatever those types of regulations actually drive financial innovation. And they, they drive like the creation of these new types of uh, investment vehicles and, and also these new types of, of, of ring around the rosy plans to, you know, get around, uh, you know, taxes. What is the Dutch double sandwich? What is that thing? Like, you know, uh, the, I don't know, the
0: double Irish with the Dutch sandwich. Like,
1: honestly, you can just create up like, a, you know, insert country name and then uh, another country's name and some number and then uh, refer to it as a food. Like, uh, uh, people will be creative with these types of, of things. And so uh, Merton argued that, um, you know, at the end of the day, whatever regulators do, people will try to find loopholes, uh, which is it, it's almost because. The le- the regulators themselves are uh, reacting rather than being proactive. Yeah. So we and right. we haven't really had that chance to talk about that in this conversation.
0: I think so I think the one out. thing that's um, that's incredibly forgotten amongst all of that is, um, you know, the double Irish, the Dutch sandwich, and and all of these loopholes. They sound fantastic, right? Um, you know, it's really exciting. It's like, well, I mean exciting in quotation marks to, to economics and finance nerds like myself and, and hopefully everyone that's watching. But uh, it's, it's kind of interesting, I suppose is maybe a better word to use in the sense that, you know, all of these people are creating these new exciting ways to move money all around the world and in and out through these secretive bank accounts and through tax havens and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, but I think one of the big things to, to remember amongst all of this is that moving money around in this way is uh, for the express and specific reason of avoiding taxes uh, is illegal. It is not legal. Uh, oftentimes people will say, oh, you know, well, what they're doing is legal. Um, and, and that is, is technically true. But the, the big caveat is to all of this um, that there has to be a reason why, other than avoiding taxes, a reason why you've structured your company this way, a reason why money is going um, you know, through Ireland, Um, because it can't be expressly for the reason of avoiding taxes. Now, when you talk about, um, you know, uh, the double Irish or the Dutch sandwich, they get away with it because um, the reason why is because they want um, patent laws to be held in Europe. Um, So it's like, okay, well, no worries. And just a a nice sneaky side effect of that is, of course, you can stash a shit ton of money in Ireland and not pay tax on it. Isn't that great? Um, But there is sort of an actual sort of reason that they can point to, even if the actual, you know, behind the curtains reason is, of course, that they're not going to pay tax on it, which is probably the case. Um, there still does need to be an actual uh, reason. If you sort of say, if you went into a you know court hearing about, you know, if you went, the IRS sued you and you went in and they sort of said, okay, well, you're sending your money all, all here to, to Bermuda. Um, why? And you go, oh, well, I just don't want to pay taxes on it. Well, pff, that's not good enough. All right, you know, pay up, bucko. Um, yeah, which is sort of an interesting um, caveat to that. Now, look, the lawyers of the rich are incredibly good. So whether that's a factor or not, um, yeah, maybe, maybe not, but it is sort of, especially worth considering now we're going to get on to the last question of the night, uh, and then I'm going to go to bed, take a whole lot of, uh, cold and flu tablets and, and die. Uh, I don't know if it's come across, but, um, I don't know, I'm, uh, i feeling a bit sick. I think I, uh, went out for the first time in the cold out. I left my apartment for the first time in like three months and, uh, you know, I, have become sort of, uh, my immune system has not had to fight anything at all. Um, uh, so the, the, the slightest breeze kind of killed me. Um, so fingers crossed, it's, it's not coronavirus. I mean, I'm in Australia, so I think I'm relatively safe, but it's um, <laughs> just one of those things that uh, I want to uh, get some rest. But uh, I think this, this question here was, was too good to ignore, and, and we'll briefly touch on it, then we'll sort of wrap it up, um, which is from Jesus Insider as well, um, which is great. Uh, Would capital flight from rich countries to poorer countries be good for the world economy because their money is going to be worth more and contribute a larger part? Uh, this is really interesting, and obviously, mm-hmm. there's, there's an argument to be had there. Um, but The argument is obviously, if it goes from, look, let's say, an economy like South Africa, South Africa's had a huge problem with capital flight, uh, especially, you know, primarily, you know, obviously, political reasons aside, primarily, um, you know, wealthy uh, white people uh, have left the country for you know, reasons mostly that they, they don't feel safe. Um, living in the country anymore because of you know horrendous crime rates and um, you know their general quality of life has been affected, so they they've moved abroad. And I don't think that was for any kind of um, taxation reasons. There was no sort of reason behind that financially. It's just that they just wanted a better quality of life for for them and their family, so they they left. Um, and and that sort of was a huge issue of a lot of capital leaving the nation, leaving them pretty poor. Um, now the argument here is that okay, you know, sure. Uh, all that money's leaving those countries and it's pretty sad for those countries but uh, if it goes to a country like let's say the united states um, where there's plenty of businesses and innovation and uh, you know fantastic infrastructure and um, all of this sort of stuff that's actually going to be able to contribute more to the world economy well isn't that a good thing wouldn't we rather invest this money into something that's actually going to give us a good proper return for the world economy rather than um you know some shitty little backwater country that that hasn't produced anything of so everyone's sort of leaving it Um, now the moral, the morals of that would say, ah, no, that's, that's absolutely horrible. But I think maybe the economics says something different. What are your thoughts on that guys?
1: So I, I'm in the camp of, you know, rich, uh, moving capital from wealthier countries to poor countries is a necessary step. It's absolutely necessary. Um, the, there just hasn't been enough investment in Africa for the longest time. And people will point out tons of reasons why. And uh, at, at the end of the day, it it does elude me personally, having actually, you know, studied uh, African business and African uh, nations and their development. Like I will, I will absolutely be investing in Africa uh, because it is just a opportunity. Let me tell you that. But um, a lot of people are hesitant because of, you know, like, like I said, people like their stability, people like their... Uh, knowing where their money's going and they like that sense of trust in that uh, sense of community. Uh, and that might be one of the reasons why, um, you know, it's a uh, capital flight from rich. Uh, it's been capital flight has mainly uh, been in the reverse where from, from poor to rich countries. But if we see from rich, con- rich to poor countries, I mean, I will, that would be a moment for me where I'm excited to uh, sit around and observe. This is a, uh, it's a very social moment and it's going to be, that might be a, play out a huge uh, role in um, you know the current uh, their current political economy and 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 their in their culture and then their uh, society and their nation as a whole. Who knows? It's uh, so in one part. That's why I'm interested in that. Um, and generally, from what I've seen with capital investment into uh, poor countries, at least in the sense of where it's not exploitative. Uh, it has been very productive for, um, I wouldn't say the world economy, but for these poor countries entering into the world economy and then actually becoming part of the world economy and being an active member and adding to supply chains. So
0: So, so you would argue that, um, well, I mean, obviously, we're not talking about money going into Africa in this instance. We're talking about money coming out of Africa. Um, so, you'd argue that it's, it's going to be very, very bad. Uh, and it's just a huge missed opportunity for for countries that actually sort of are on the cusp of, of doing something fantastic if only they can get the investment, uh, rather than a country that probably realistically gets all the investment it ever needs. And, uh, you know, maybe it will be able to do something productive with it, but not nearly on the scale of what like an African nation would be. Uh, I Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. I, I'm,
1: I'm like trying to do like 10 different things at once. Um, could you, sorry, could you repeat the question for me?
0: Sorry, no, no. I was trying to summarise what you're saying. It's oh, okay. That um, it's bad uh, because, of course, we're looking at something where it's going in the opposite direction. If if money's coming out of Africa, yeah, um, you know that that's sort of the opposite thing. And and what I'd sort of said in your argument was is uh, these are the countries that desperately, desperately need that investment because they're on the cusp of actually sort of being able to do something fantastic with it, um, as opposed to something like the United States where uh hey you know look they get all the investment that they realistically need and you know normally they're able to provide something of value if they do get that investment but it's not nearly on the scale of what you'd get if you were to uh properly uh invest it into a nation like africa or and, a nation like africa uh, uh, african nations
2: and and also too i think i think this is a, a, an excellent question because um is whoever is investing their money is it going to be worth more i think absolutely because i think the rate of return uh although you know much riskier in, in a undeveloped country. As you put that money to work, um, I think the rate of return is 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 shown to be higher, um, and uh, you know that's why typically developing country funds tend to uh, perform better than uh, uh, you know uh, just domestic U.S. funds, and I, I think that's a function of the opportunity uh, providing more um, access to jobs, basically um, you know employing the local workforce. And if you think about it, too, it's also good for American investors, because if you have, you know, I don't want to keep bringing up this example, but it's a very good example. If you have Amazon um, and you have more people working in Africa um, as their economies continue to develop due to um, foreign direct investment, then I definitely think that, you know, that's good for Amazon, too, because they can sell more products. They could uh, they can grow can start, their, their service area.
0: You can start selling uh, uh dog beds that look like Kirby from uh, from Nintendo to to people in Africa
2: <laughs> exactly
0: <laughs> the the, uh, the essence of where our economy stands for these days yeah and I think that's um, on, on that I'm uh, at note I, I am gonna have to wrap it up there uh, just because uh... <laughs> I, uh, I just want to go to curl up in bed and die. Um, but uh, thank you all for for coming on, uh, especially um, well walk and, and and compound. Uh, of course, at such short notice, uh, I reached out to, to compound and said, Hey, do you want to come on to our live stream again? He's like, Yeah, absolutely. It's right. Um, so I definitely, definitely, definitely suggest um, checking out his channel uh, compound daily go watch it on YouTube. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, the topics that he touches on are really related more so to uh, more so to finance, I suppose, as opposed to um, to economics. I would sort of say, yep. uh, in general. But uh, obviously, he's coming from these topics from a point of view of you know someone that, that's in and amongst it every single day. Uh, of the week so um so a lot of knowledge there and, and yeah he puts them together really really well they don't they don't get nearly as much attention as they they should uh so i think hopefully it, it blows up sometime soon well i appreciate
2: uh, as- the kind words i really do it, it means a lot to me
0: and of course always uh captain lock uh, our favorite sort of box head mascot uh, uh who will <laughs> sort of tell you to come and join um the discord server which you definitely should so i'll leave a link to to um uh Campan daily's youtube channel in the the comment section uh, sorry in the video description uh as well as captain lock uh well i'll leave a link to the discord server so that uh captain lock can lord over you as a senior moderator but outside of that um bedtime for me guys all
2: right, right. get well
0: get well yep Uh. Get